Ladies and gentlemen, hello. Happy <laughs> post-Halloween, or as we say in our house, Merry Christmas. The worst time of... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I want to hear all about it, because you had kind of an epic... So I want to hear about the costume, I want to hear about the celebration, and then I want to hear about the post-Halloween trip to Las Vegas. So just yeah, fire baby. away. This was this is this is Stafford's favorite time of year. And and you know like now we get into lights and positivity and hope and <laughs> sentimentality and Tim is Tim is totally depressed. Well, first but, of uh, all, let me push back on all of that. Oh. You know what I oh. thought about when I was walking around trick or treating? So we every year we open up our house and we have three big pots of chili. And nice. people bring extra stuff. And we have like, so we probably had like 60, 70 people here. I oh. mean, well, like f of full families. With one working bathroom, which is That's correct. awesome. <laughs> and chilly. Just let and then that we sit went, And then we just trick, we leave from our house and we trick or treat our neighborhood. So it's magical. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was walking around. And I was just like, you know, how rad is this holiday? All these adults get dressed up in their houses. They're so positive. They get candy. They decorate a little bit. They wait for kids to come up. They're kind. They're like generous with their time and with the kids. I was like, this is such a positive holiday. The kids yeah. love it. The kids are having a blast. The neighborhood like engages each other. It's very communal. Christmas is not that way. What better very way to communal. worship Satan than that way? <laughs> yes. Well, he's a communal dude. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we had a lot of fun. I was a werewolf. Um, oh, of course. My costume freaked some people out. Including my mom yeah, when she showed up and she, because I, I guess they couldn't tell it was me. Well, um, I mean, that's a good costume then, right? Yeah. My son Elliot was Albert Einstein because he always picks something random every year. And so we got him a bushy Love mustache it. and painted his hair. Nice. What was Shauna? Shauna was uh, Crookshanks, who is Hermione uh, yeah. Granger's cat from Harry of Potter. Of course. Dude, uh, you, Mazzy listen, was if Hermione. you have to explain it, if you have to explain it, then, then you're not worthy to explain <laughs> it to. That's exactly right. Yeah. And then yeah. we got up early the next morning and flew to Vegas for a just you, just you and, and Shauna. Just not the me and fam. Shauna and then our and then our two of our really good friends and we flew down to go see you two at the sphere. Yeah. Um wild quick trip. Got there, got to our hotel, and then had to head straight to the venue. And then they got up at four in the morning and flew home because they had to go to work. And oh, wow. so but well, it was an under twenty four hour trip. Wow. The sphere, I cannot describe. Yeah. It's un, It's just unreal. But I had some very wonderful moments in there. It was very profound. I think I cried twice. <laughs> yes. There it is. <laughs> it's really intense. It's This is the crazy. sphere in Las Vegas, right? So this was the U2 show. And, and it's so that you can see venue. it from a you can see it from the plane. Yeah. Like it's a it's it's hard yeah. to understand how big and then what it's like inside when that screen starts going is just bananas yeah yeah what, it was we, very fun what song did you cry to or was it more the visual or it was the combo it was both yeah the early on when he was saying one ever since we did our little u2 thing gombas really drilled into my head the last lyric on one is um that we get to carry each other it's this mm -hmm. really profound, like, this is what it means to be human together. So we, it's a privilege to carry one another. Mm -hmm. And that is just, like, 
stuck in my head since we that's kind of sounds like it. love your neighbor right there sure does and then that's how it is in there like everybody was just so full <clears throat> of joy and positive and singing and mm. it was just like with so mm. many negative things going on in the world right now yeah between how nice it was to see halloween everyone being so communal and then all these strangers singing and dancing together and it was just it felt very like my soul needed like a really yeah. positive human interaction yeah. experience and i feel like that's what i got this week dude i love that yeah it was great and 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 what i think i'm gonna like i, I don't dress up ever for halloween because i don't worship the the <laughs> angel of darkness but it's not too late for you i think i'm gonna dress up as the sphere <laughs> you know what i'm saying just my my bald head and just the yeah, that would be perfect. So and the outside I, is a screen too, like, and it changes. Yeah, yeah. And so it turns into like a big emoji. That, that's emoji. why I was thinking of yeah, the oh, big man, yellow emoji so head. I know, seriously, it's really nuts. wild, bro. I'm so glad you got to experience that. Happy yeah. Halloween, yeah, well you. done. Um, Seth Erie dressed up as there, there's we've. I'm sure we've talked about his his little rock star friend who. Is in a band. It's the kid in oh, high yeah. school. Is in a band, and they wear these painter, like jacket, like outfit things. And the, our friend's mom made Seth one of those for Halloween. Oh, so Seth, moon. you don't. Yeah. So so we do this thing. <laughs> what a thoughtful gift. What a thoughtful. I mean, beyond. And so yeah. Seth marched around with his guitar, singing these songs and just going. I Absolutely berserk. Oh my goodness. Just so happy. So yeah, that was, that's super fun. And, um, so anyway, I'm glad you had a great time, bro. You, you can tell, you could tell you're radiating something today. Well, it's like, you know, part of us just haven't slept all week. That's <laughs> good. <like. laughs> that radiates something for sure. I also drove to and from Mariposa, which is right outside of Yosemite for um, my buddy's birthday. He wanted to fish all day. Oh my so we went goodness. on the river and it was there and back three and a half hours each way. And I got poison oh. oak now. So I went to Vegas Whoa. with poison oak all over my arms, which is exciting. So let me get this straight. You, you had a Halloween 60-person communal celebration. You drove seven hours to go fishing with a friend. Then you hopped on a plane and did a less than 24-hour trip to Vegas. Is that what yeah. you're telling me? Yes, sir. And you're wondering, or maybe you're not wondering I'm not. if you're tired. Okay. Just acknowledging. Just acknowledging. Man, that is that's a packed week, my friend. Yeah. Um, excellent work, Stafford. Well done. Ladies and gentlemen, we hope you had a blessed Halloween. Can we even right. put those words together? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but but the Erie household transitions quickly. So Halloween for us is September and October. Uh, <laughs> you know, we put Halloween decorations up like middle of September. I'm not allowed to until the October first. I, listen, I understand every family has their constraints, um, but we, and we're more fall. It's more of a fall decoration than, you know, like, like pictures of death um, and skeletons. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but then, but, but I, we got out the Christmas decorations. We're not decorated yet. I know. I know. I Listen, if you could see his face, the disgust <laughs> just, on his face. I had to go to Target the day after. Uh, to pick up some stuff for Vegas. And while I was there, this kid was putting out, they had all their Christmas stuff out. It was the oh, yeah. day after. And I, was like, I was like, dude, what? 
He's like, yeah, oh, man, I, I know, man. Like, they make me do this right away. I can't believe it. I was like, it's blasphemous. And he's like, yeah, it is. <laughs> <Got all right>. <laughs> <laughs> Rock the power. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I look at Thanksgiving and I'm like, the, that, I mean, the whole package is beautiful. The next several months. Yeah, so we just, season. we just, yeah, I love it. Best time of year. So, um, so anyway, I, I just want you to know, dear Voxology listener, um, you're getting two holiday extremes uh, on the show. And this is why, right. why we're great together is you get the Lord of Darkness celebration and then the Lord of Light celebration. Right. And um, yeah, yeah, you can judge for yourself, which is, uh, which is <laughs> needed. So anyway, um, we are going to keep moving. I mean, we're in an uninterrupted stream of goodness, of revelation goodness <laughs> right now. That's right. We're not booking interviews Beasts and dragons and we're just plowing. Oh somebody, I don't remember who it was, somebody intimated that we were going slowly through this book and that just that fired me up. And so yeah. we are now So now we're going to slow down even more. Well, good lord. <laughs> yes. We've done we've done at our our church, we've done like 12 weeks on Genesis 1 or something. Maybe it's not 12 <laughs> weeks, but maybe it's just like you slow. had a big weekend know. too. You were in the LBC. I was in the California. I was in the California guys. Absolutely. Um, a friend of ours named Darren Roundsin, um, and I spoke at their church of the garden and I got this wonderful text from my friend Tim who had watched it, which is amazing. We were in the same time zone for once. So <laughs> that was awesome. Um, you know, it was, it, it's only that, that experience is only second to seeing you two in the uh, sphere so it's a distant second but still second yeah yeah so it was great anyway um before we get to our uh topic for the day which is babylon um we're going to do two episodes on babylon um and uh before we get there we got an email and you know to say that i'm behind and that we're behind on email is a is an understatement of colossal proportions um, anyway, we got an email in and I thought, Ooh, this is interesting. And it was also, it also tied into a little bit about what I was talking about in Long Beach this weekend. So this is a, this is a, an email from a, a listener. Greetings, Mike, Tim, and Seth. And I like now that Seth is simply included <laughs> as yeah. part of that and normally mentioned first, um, so we've been doing this thing on Instagram. I don't know if you've seen it, Tim, where, where we kind of go over Seth's day. Yeah. And it's just, it's absolutely hilarious. Um, uh, I, I always think, ah, that feels, is that dumb or whatever? And people are like, no, we need, we need more of this. So <laughs> I, and Seth now is addicted. Every time he comes up, he's like, Instagram, Instagram. No, son, it's <laughs> a week. That's all we're doing. Anyway, greetings back, Tim and Seth. I've been listening to Voxology regularly for at least a year. Thank you for doing that. Oh, and you know who I, I met somebody in Long Beach who had listened to every single episode we've ever done. At the church? At the church. And I was like, boy. So we prayed healing over that person like crazy. <laughs> um, anyway, I've been listening to Voxology regularly uh, for at least a year. Appreciate both the content and the tone. Thank you for that. I've been a Bible believer for as long as I can remember. I've been to Bible college and even participated in ministry for a number of years. That being said, I'm in a season where I'm struggling to want to read the Bible for myself. 
I'm thankful for you guys and others in my life who have lately been shining a lot of light on parts of scripture we have simply been reading wrongly and have been taught to understand wrongly up until now. I guess that is part of the reason why I'm struggling. How is it we have all missed so much all this time, and how can we enter into the word now, knowing that we're probably still missing so much more than we realize? I thought that was a great question. In my earliest days as a Christian, I'm sorry to say that I based a lot of my self-esteem on the illusion that I was right about a lot of a lot of things Bible knowledge related. Boy, you are so not alone on that. Yeah. Um, no doubt, this is to some extent the flip side of that coin. Now, <laughs> how do I how do I know anything? <laughs> However, there is also the other icky feeling of being misled, and she clarifies, not lied to necessarily, as I don't think most people who taught us were ill-intended, but we were, I think, misled to a great extent. Yeah. The translation I'm most drawn to right now is the First Nations version by Terry Wildman, along with a team of others. I haven't read this, but this is like the the second or third person who's recommended this, so I need to go out and snag it. Talk about people who have been lied to as a culture, but still found a way to hold on to faith in Jesus. Maybe that's why I'm drawn to it. Also, it, the Bible, makes a ton more sense in their context than it does in mine. So she's killing it right now. I mean, the Bible wasn't really written to comfortable people in a dominant culture with the goal of making them feel good about themselves. I mean, amen. This is so great. Anyway, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on staying in the word once you start to realize how little you really understand correctly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of at a point when people read scripture automatically think, it seems like that that is really being taken out of context. Not that I know what the intended context is all the time, but I just kind of feel overwhelmed by how much we've gotten wrong. And I wonder we're all just learning. I wonder why we are all just learning about so much of this stuff for the first time. Anyways, all that being said, thank you for what you guys are doing. I believe it's significant work. Thank you, thank you, thank you, dear listener, for uh, emailing this in. And, and my yeah. goodness, this we've circled around this topic, question, issue a whole lot. And, and we try to hold, I try to hold several things in tension. And this is all new for me because I'm... I'm the same kind of person that loves clarity and loves rightness and loves, um, I don't know, having answers. And, you know, I went through a whole apologetics phase where, and I went to, I went to graduate school in philosophy. I mean, I love, you know, arguments for the existence of God and for the problem of evil and how do you, I mean, I love this stuff. These are, these are like, this was like the root of my faith for so long. And so I, I was totally sympathetic to, Oh well, crap! Now what do we do? Yeah. Um, and I know, man, Tim. I know you'll speak to this, you know, too. You, you definitely. <laughs> so on, on the one hand, we try to hold to the idea that 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 there are parts of the Bible that are really clear, and that they're so clear even our kids can understand them. Um, you know about the beauty of Jesus and the work of God in the world and whatever else. And we also realize that you could spend your whole life studying the text and never reach the bottom of it. And I, that's one of the things I, I greatly enjoy about the Bible is that yeah. what I thought I knew, there are parts of that that are often very true and accurate, but it's just deeper and more beautiful than I originally thought. It's, it's the metaphor that Gombas first used about walking into a natural park. It's like you're standing in the gift shop of a natural park and you're looking at the pictures of the mountains, the valleys, the wildflowers, the springs, the things you're about to see. 
And and it's not that those are, are false images, but they're just nothing compared to the real thing. And I feel like that's been my experience in theology, that I was giving, I was given images, and not all of them are false, but they're but robbed of context and robbed of grandeur, they're just shallow representations of the real thing. And when you walk into the natural park and you see the things with your own eyes, it's tough to go back into the gift shop and settle for the the, the hollow images. So if we could play with that metaphor, your experience is exactly the, the effect that the text is supposed to have. On the yeah. one hand, we're to be overwhelmed by the character and goodness and beauty of God and Jesus. And on the other hand, we're to be mindful that just like the nation of Israel and just like the first followers of Jesus and just like the early church, there is much we think we know that Jesus has yet to correct in us. And so if those earliest followers kept getting it wrong... Yeah, the dudes that were walking around with them the whole time. Yes, exactly, exactly. And then, and here's, I mean, and, and then even after, so they've walked around with Jesus, they've seen him risen from the dead. And then Peter um, still is hanging on to his Jewish identity so much that God has to give him visions and direct him into... Cornelius's house in the book of yes. Acts and then have him rebuked by Paul publicly in Antioch. And I mean, wow. So, so I don't, I don't, I'm not in the, you can't know anything camp. That's not true. The Bible, I mean, like John ends the gospel of John by saying these, there are many things that could be said about Jesus, but I've written these that you might believe in him. And in so believing have eternal life. Or the beginning of Luke says, I've written you, Theophilus, so that you might know the truth of the things that you've been taught. So there is sure footing in, in our view here. Absolutely. But the sure footing turns out to be a little different than the sure footing that the evangelical church kind of handed us in an inherited sort of cultural way. Yeah. And in my experiences, the, the, the footing is surer than I, I thought it was, but it's not... But it's not as wide or broad as evangelical culture led me to believe. That there are so many other ways of seeing the text um, that that make me recognize that my sureness in um, some of the cultural baggage that came along with evangelical culture was not based on surety or the text at all. It was rather based on me trying to be in control or not have to have faith or lo loving to be certain or whatever. And it wasn't actually based on a, a, the humbling of ourselves before the text. Makes sense so far, Timothy? Yeah. You jive in with all this? You want to add anything thus far? I, I really wish we could do a, for lack of a better term, a reconstruction nonference. Because I, I resonate really, like, I remember being kind of angry realizing how much misinformation or um, misaligned information I'd been given my whole life. And this podcast has been so much of that, obviously, just like, this is what I was handed. This is what we found to be true, though, over here. But I think posturing yourself not in anger, but in just wonder and curiosity. And I, yeah. I found myself to be that I'll reposture myself to be excited about the fact that I get to leave the gift shop and mm. that, the, and that mm. what's outside is bigger and more wonderful. Yeah. And so I'm like, I, I don't want to hold while I still want to 
tear down the institutions that are still doing this to people. Um, <clears throat> I don't want, I don't posture myself in anger. I try not to posture myself in anger or regret or those kind of things. I'm really, I just want to be like, you know what? I'm so excited that it's bigger and better than what I had, what I had been told. And I'm excited to have just spend the rest of my life wandering in the national park in the woods and wondering yeah. at the mountains and wondering at the trees and just, and it makes me really, for me, I know this is taking this verse out of context, but that's the power that I can, but the be still and know that you're God. <laughs> Sometimes I think about that in this conversation where it's just like, I'm just going to shut up for a little bit and I'm going to, and mm. I'm going to wonder at who, how God reveals and what yeah. God is doing. And I'm not going to sit here and, and look at as much as I do get uh, in trouble for doom scrolling and, as much as Mark Driscoll and others come through my Instagram feed to piss me off, um, I try to be outside and just and just wonder at yeah. how much more we still get to learn and grow. And like you, I'm so glad that it's bigger. I like to know things for certain too, but I don't want to know everything. I want it to be bigger than my brain can comprehend. Yeah. I want God to be massive. And yeah. I want God to be wonderful and, and mysterious and, and new and... I don't yeah. want it to be like, I figured it all out. Cool. <laughs> like, where do you go from yeah. there? <laughs> yeah. Ex yes. Boy. And, and, and I think that, so Gumbus will talk about having uh, a critical mind without having a critical spirit. Mm. And that's really, that's a really hard thing to manage because um, like you say in your email, you know, you're sitting there hearing things and now going, huh, I'm not sure that quite, <laughs> that's quite what it is or what it's saying, or I'm not sure you're, um, you're using this text in a way that brings life or whatever. And, um, and so there are some, I, I think there are some, some ways like, um, that I, I, I think about it, it. One of the ways I think about this is in terms of standing over the text as a master versus standing under the text as a receiver of a gift. And so um, for most of my life, I've stood over the text, trying to understand it, asking questions like, well, what does the Bible say about predestination? Or what does the Bible say about hell? Um, I've used it, I've employed it to defend certain positions. I've got arguments for why the Bible's historically reliable and all of those sorts of things. But in all of those examples, I kind of stand over the text and allow, and I'm I'm rummaging through it for other purposes. Some of those purposes might be noble, um, but in all cases, I'm the one standing over it. The, the book is subject to my review. And one of the things that really changed the bigger the Bible has gotten is that the Bible becomes something that interrupts my ways of thinking and believing, my normal habits and patterns of relating, my normal social dynamics, that if you read it slowly and you stand under it, it becomes very disruptive in your life. And um, and that's when that's part of the reason why I trust that I'm reading it. When I'm doing that, I trust that I'm reading it well. Hmm. That that I'm receiving the Bible as it comes to me, not demanding how it should come to me. You know what I mean? It's the difference between 
saying, listen, I, w- I only want to read the Bible that I want. And what I want is a clear reference book that inspires me on some days and makes me feel good on others and comforts me when I'm down. It's got little and, clips for every different emotional yeah, state you're in. Yeah, exactly. And it hates the same people I do. Right. Um, and But what, what we get instead is this, this wild and vast and weird terrain of goats being boiled in their mother's milk and <laughs> cities falling down at the sound of like trumpets. Right. And People Yahweh. Able to build a tower that's tall enough to threaten God. Right. Right. I mean, just, just so odd. Just, it's so weird. And, and instead of being, you know, Instead of standing over the text saying, this is so dumb and so weird, I stand under it and say, there, there's a reason why this is in here, even if I don't know what it is. And I'm curious. It's the be curious, but not judgmental. So, so many of us stand over the Bible in judgment, whereas I want to stand under the Bible in curiosity. And therefore, it, we stand over our fellow man in judgment and not in curiosity. Totally. Exactly right. So, and, and this, this idea of standing under the Bible can totally be abused by people like Driscoll and others who will, you know, claim to be the only avenue of righteous, you know, hermeneutic. And, um, and I'm, I can be guilty of this too. I mean, this isn't, I'm not, I'm, I don't critique anything that I haven't myself done. Um, but if you can find a safe place where there's no other agenda than, than, than listening to the text and trying to experience and see the God that sits behind it, then I think it's appropriate at times for us to sit and be willing to sit in mystery and intention and questions and say, I'm assuming there's a reason this is in here, even if I don't understand what it is. And that is how I can even, you know, uh, go through the text these days, knowing that there's so much I don't know. But but uh, that reminder to me is thrilling rather than debilitating. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's, and the Bible's full of questions and lament and anger and all yeah. the emotions that we were kind of told were off limits. You find that the Bible's full of people with those things and God is with them in all of that stuff, which is awesome. I was thinking this morning, my son asked me about um, the lady that ran for mayor in your town. And it kind of led to a. a uh, I'm glad. I'm glad our town had you know is now known for that for well, this led to like crazy a person. Christian nationalism conversation. He's 11, and he oh. just you know was like, "What does that mean?" And I was explaining. I was like, "It's important to understand what this means, though, because people expected this of Jesus. They yeah. expected him to be a nationalistic leader and to take power. And trying to explain that to an 11 year old, and he was just like, "Okay, like he got it. He's like, this is opposite yeah. of that." And I started thinking about when I was working in the prison in LA about how we were, you know, this is not a phrase we came up with, but we used it a lot with the cycles that humans get caught in. So it was like the idea that hurt people will hurt people, but healed people will heal people. And and so at some point that these cycles have to get broken so that we can grow and mature and be what we're Mm -hmm. supposed to be and what Mm -hmm. we were meant to be. And so with like this listener's question, I just hope that our podcast encourages people to break those cycles and, you know, it has to start somewhere and then be the people that embrace the wonder and the mystery and the fullness of God and, and of scripture and that kind of stuff. So I hope that it can turn into an encouraging place to be rather than a discouraging one. 
Yeah. Because I know that feeling where you're just like, you're holding the Bible in your hand. You're like, I don't know what to do with this anymore. Like this is, right. this is gibberish and I've seen it harm <laughs> a lot of people and I don't know what to do totally. with this. And you, all of a sudden you're totally. like, this is a foreign text. Yeah. Despite growing and up I, with it. And whenever, exactly, or going to Bible college or whatever. Right. And whenever I get into that wilderness, one of the things I do is I just cut all the Bible off except for Jesus. And um, so one of the things we talked about this weekend in Long Beach was printing out Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, eliminating all paragraph breaks, chapter numbers, chapter headings, and verse numbers, and then just reading it out loud. It takes 20 minutes. Read it out loud two or three times a week. And then after that, pray the Lord's Prayer. And, And you'll find that the words of Jesus will become wonderfully intrusive. Man, maybe we should um, do that and just put post it on the on our website. Like just, just like read a it? simple PDF of it. Just like a Oh nice. Just do it and then make it a, like so people can just grab it. Yeah. That's a great idea, Timothy. Um and then yeah. And then you can sing it. And I think that would be that would be amazing. Um blessed are. Anyway, we're jumping in to Revelation. So great question. I don't know if yeah. any of that help uh, helpful other than we just want to validate yes. 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 It's a great thing. Um, let's talk about Revelation, guys. <laughs> I'm going to spend half an hour introducing Babylon. And like Day of the Lord, Babylon is a motif. It starts out as a city and then it becomes a motif, ladies and gentlemen, an archetype that gets used to describe other things. So per use, Revelation is in dialogue with some of the Roman imperial propaganda of its day and the entirety of the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. And if you don't, you know, 2,000 years later, we don't recognize really either. And so we're going to meet another version of Babylon in the book of Revelation. But that carries with it freight from the Old Testament that, that causes us, like the day of the Lord, not to see revelation picturing one final instance of babylon but rather to prepare the church for yet another instance of babylon and the perpetual instances of babylon that they live under and we live under even today does that make sense so the Mm -hmm. question is how in america what the goal of looking at babylon is to say how do i partner with the dynamics of babylon how am i complicit in the dynamics of babylon today And those dynamics are worthy then of the day of the Lord, the wrath of God being poured out on human structures and societies. And, and, you know, it may not look um, the way that it looked, you know, 2000 years ago, but, um, but I, I, I very much think God is still working and actively opposing uh, the work of Babylon in the world. So let's talk about Babylon. After Genesis 3, so Genesis 1 and 2, human beings, garden, temple, they have priestly and kingly roles in the garden. In their humanity, they're simply to be image bearers. Uh, It's not something they do. It's an identity statement so that everything they do was to image God. Um, Of course, we meet a talking snake. We talked about the talking snake a couple episodes ago. Uh, And the humans, instead of imaging God over creation, now the humans listen to the serpent and almost image the serpent's will into creation. 
And as a result, everything gets inverted. Everything gets flipped upside down. And Paul will later describe this as, we worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is to be forever praised. And so what begins to happen is this inversion, we begins, it gets drawn out through cycles and patterns from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11. One of those cycles is the cycle of violence. So we, we instantly meet Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel. And then, uh, and, and then the, the thing that God does, and it's so interesting here, God said to him, um, because Cain's like, well, now, if you're going to cause me to wander, um, I'm vulnerable now. People will, will come after me and murder me. And, and, and God says, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, N-O-D, east of Eden. So moving eastward is this motif we're going to see all throughout the book of Genesis. We don't have time to explore, but it's always eastward. So he goes out and he lives in the land of Nod. Cain made love to his wife. She became pregnant, gave birth to, birth to Enoch. Cain was building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. Now, Cain's city becomes an interesting focal point for several of the stories that follow. And we meet all these people that, you know, the first poet, the first culture warrior, the first builder, right? We just meet these culture-making sort of people. One of the inhabitants that we meet of Cain City is, is Lamech. Uh, Lamech, uh, at one point, boasts in his ability uh, to do vengeance and harm on others. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I killed a young man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain will be avenged seven times, Lamech will be avenged 77 times. The idea is that violence is increasing and the desire for human retribution on each other is increasing. And, and many think when Jesus, you know, when Jesus is asked by the disciples, hey, how many times should I forgive um, mm. someone who's injured me? And Peter's like, seven, up to seven, which is like, what? <laughs> and, and Jesus replies, seven, 70 times seven or seven, 77 times. There's a textual variant there. He's riffing on the Lamech story that that's like, Lamech is saying, yeah, as many times as you can be hurt back, that's how many it will be. And Jesus is countering that with, well, as many times as you forgive, that's how, or can forgive, that's how many times you should. But the picture we're given in Genesis is that violence is rippling. It starts out in a family, yeah. now it's present in a city, and, and it's growing in momentum, all right? So much so that when we encounter Genesis 6, and, and we've talked about the Nephilim and the sons of God, but there's a line in there about the every human heart is inclined towards violence now. And, and the reason God decreates in Genesis through the flood is because of the violence in every human heart. So violence is this motif of, uh, that God keeps opposing as the humans move eastward away from Eden, Okay. 
So the flood then is this cosmic reboot, this cosmic recreation. And it has all these parallels to Genesis 1 in terms of how the story plays out. Noah and his family gets the same commission that the, the Adam and the Eve did back in the day. And we soon realize, oh, well, they're imperfect too. God commits to them and their imperfection and says, I will never decreate again. Great. The culmination of all of these bad impulses in humanity shows up in the Tower of Babel story. So um, this is the crowning sort of achievement of human fallenness. All right. So I'm going to read it. That was all background to set up this. Okay. Humanity is grown in its violence. Humanity is grown in its ability to hurt each other. Humanity is growing in its technology and ambition. So the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, again, it's this motif of eastward. They found a plain in Shinar that's called, and, and you don't see this in English, but it's called Babylonia, <laughs> and settled there. They said to each other, now, the commission God had given them was fill the earth and subdue it. So, so when, they, when it says they moved so far and they stopped, that's, that's a tiny way of, of saying, hey, humanity isn't fulfilling its original purpose. They said to, said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Now, bricks and mortar are going to be a theme we're going to read about. So just keep that, keep that phrase in mind. They're building a city with bricks and mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we'll be scattered over the face of the earth. Now, let's talk about those three statements. We think the word for the Hebrew word for tower here just literally means tower, but but there's good reason to think that what they're referencing is something called a ziggurat. Um, and there's archaeological evidence around that time and blah, 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 blah. But a ziggurat um, is really different than a pyramid. Pyramid, a ziggurat is a an edifice that that the whole purpose of the edifice is to hold a stairway a, a really tall stairway the ziggurat um is kind of ish pyramid ish shaped but it's it's filled with dirt and debris it's a solid structure usually there was a temple next to it and the purpose of the staircase to the heavens was that the, the gods would come down and dwell in the temple so the staircase wasn't for the human. This is a very important point. The staircase wasn't for the humans to walk up to be with the gods. The staircase was the was for the gods to come down and dwell among the humans. All right? So the purpose of a ziggurat was only a stairway. And that stairway was only for God's use. It was not for the use of the humans. Okay. So what they're trying to do here is they're trying to create sacred space for themselves. They've been there. They no longer, they're moving eastward. They're no longer part of Eden where God dwelt among them uniquely. And now they're creating sacred space for themselves, make a name for themselves and to stop scattering. So we, uh, so the purpose of the city was to build just this metropolis where we wouldn't have to fill the earth and subdue it. We would all reside right here and God would come and dwell among us on our terms. That's the idea. Make sense? Yeah. So, so 
the Lord came down to see. Now, the, the reason God comes down is it means he comes down those stairs. That's the, that's the picture we're getting here. The Lord came down to see, if the, to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if anyone, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. That's why that language is used and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from uh, there over all the earth. So now they're, now they're forcibly scattered and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel. Now, this is the only place this noun is called Babel. Everywhere else, it's called Babylon. Hmm. Okay, hundreds of other times, it's called Babylon. Babel and Babylon rhyme with the Hebrew word for confusion. Hmm. But this is the only place, and it's really uh, obscuring the fact that this is Babylon. This is the first instance of a city named Babylon. And the thing that was true about Babylon was that it, was, it wanted to exalt itself. Um, and so it declared its own sacred space. It stopped fulfilling the mandate God had set out for it to scatter and fill the earth. Uh, and, and that it was going to be a monument to human ambition and te technological prowess. Just like Vegas. With well, the sphere is exactly, no. Um, so, so does that make sense so far? Yeah. Perf. <clears throat> Perf, as my kids would say. Um, that is why it is called Babylon, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. Now, so Babylon is an ancient city, right? Yes, we just met it. It's an ancient city. Yeah. But Babylon becomes an archetype for evil human empires that suffer the same self-delusions of grandeur, ambition, violence, like the whole thing becomes wrapped up in the word Babylon. All right. So we go to Exodus. <laughs> it's so right? funny just after being in Vegas because <laughs> that's it. I know. We just had so many conversations about Vegas, but along these lines, it was, it's just very ironic. Isn't it? Don't you think? Don't you think? Uh, so <laughs> Joseph comes to power in Egypt at a time period where lots of foreigners were migrating into Egypt. In fact, uh, a lot of Semitic peoples were migrating into Egypt. And there, there was a, a group of people called the Hykos that actually took over the rulership of Egypt for about 100 years. They were foreigners. And, and, and e uh, Egypt, because of famine elsewhere, was just swamped with foreign peoples. After that hundred years was over, all of the Semitic peoples get expelled, or the high coast anyway, get expelled from Egypt. And there becomes a very anti-Semitic people sentiment that settles over Egypt. And so when we get to the first part of Exodus and we read there was a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, we're talking about that post, that, that post period of time where now Egypt was really suspicious of foreigners in their midst. Uh, there was a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing who came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal with them shrewdly or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight us and leave the country. So 
they put slave masters over them. Now, this is the first time we've encountered slavery, Hmm. all right? And this phrase, slave masters, becomes really important in another story we're going to look at. So just mark that phrase, slave masters, down. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with something called forced labor, slavery. And they built cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the field. So now we have a city, another city, being built with what? Bricks and mortar. Now, how does the author, how do, how do the biblical authors, authors emphasize something? They repeat it. Well, they repeat it. So any, now we have another city being, with built, being built with bricks and mortar. And of course, you'd instantly go, oh, we just met one I of those. Saw that, yeah. yeah, we just saw that. But now we've added the other element of forced labor, of taskmasters, of slave masters. So now we're, we're just getting hints that Egypt has become a new form of Babylon. Because these cities are being built with forced labor, brick and mortar, for the self-glory of Egypt, right? They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The Egyptians begin to, to murder the male babies, um, as we know. Moses kind of gets raised up out of this to deliver you know, Egypt or Israel from Egypt in the Exodus event. And so what happens is that picture, that singular picture of Babylon and its wickedness gets applied to Egypt and we get a picture of Exodus, which is rescue from Babylon slash Egypt. And that paradigm, the slavery to Babylon and the Exodus event out away from Egypt, Babylon becomes a paradigm of salvation throughout the rest of the Bible. All right, so a day, the first day of the Lord comes against Egypt. And we've talked about this, how the people get delivered and so on, so on, so on. But that was the first day of the Lord. Now, the thing that's really wacky um, is that Israel becomes a version of Babylon in their history too. So how do we know this? Well, we meet a king named Solomon Solomon's reign starts like amazing. What God, God says, I'll give you anything you want. He says, I want to govern your people well. And, um, and he does, and everything Solomon does flourishes. But in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 5, we, we read about the first fault line in Solomon's character. King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, conscripted laborers, 30,000 men. And Jeronaram was in charge of the forced labor, same word used in Exodus. And he appointed 3,300 taskmasters, same word as slave masters that we just read in Egypt, who supervised the product or the project, excuse me. So, there's just, and again, you wouldn't, it wouldn't jump out at you. You're just no. reading this in your English Bible and you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, so Solomon. But this, 
These words are being pulled forward from the Exodus story about taskmasters and forced laborers and, uh, and, you know, and, and all of this is now being done in service to yeah. the Israelite vision of, you know, God's temple and the king's temple. In fact, we find that that Solomon spell, uh, spends seven years building the God's temple with slave labor and fourteen years building his own palace. Little, little, like mm, he accumulates seven hundred wives. There's a lot right in there, right? Like seven years building, but with using forced, forced labor from other labor. people, and then the temple. double the time to build his own. Yes, so it's just you, packed full of. <laughs> yes, and again, I mean, because we're not, I'm not familiar with the Hebrew that's sitting behind all of this, you would just miss the idea that these words are being pulled forward that are like blinking red lights telling you, oh, the same oppression that Egypt was doing to Israel, Israel is now doing to others. That same picture and doing it in service of the temple of the Lord. And you're like, good Lord. And, and in fact, Solomon marries one of Pharaoh's daughters. And as a dowry, Pharaoh destroys one of the Israelite cities and then hands that just dis, destroyed ruined place to Solomon to do with as, whatever he pleases as a dowry. I mean, like it's insane. And so not shockingly, a day of the Lord gets prophesied against Israel. And we looked at that when we introduced the concept in the book of Amos, for instance, and other places. And, 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 and in the irony of ironies, who is used to discipline Israel? Well, one of the, the nations used is the nation of Babylon, <laughs> where they go into exile. So Babylon, if you look at the ark of the Old Testament, Babylon is there at the very beginning and Babylon is there at the very end. And Egypt, or Egypt manifests Babylonness, but so does Israel. And as a result, God uses the archetype to discipline them. And, it, and you just go, oh, 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 okay. So the dynamics of Babylon are dynamics of exploitation and oppression and unhindered economic you know, growth. Uh, it's the dynamics of self-exaltation the, to define sacred space for themselves, the, their own pantheon of deities, and so on, right? It's like so we're going to... Well, it could be. What, we're, what we then are going to see next episode is when we get to the book of Revelation and you begin to hear about the Babylon that is oppressing God's people there, you're going to see oppression and, and delusions of grandeur and you know, the persecution of God's people and whatever else. So, so much of what's happening in Revelation, and one scholar put it this way, there's nothing new in the book. Right. The only new part what, is that... What an important statement for that book in particular. Yeah, seriously. The, the new part, but even the new part is prefigured. Yeah. In other parts of the Bible, the new part is that the Lion of Judah is a lamb that's been slain and that that's God's victory over the world. Um, but, you know, even in the book of Exodus, we meet about slain lambs. You know, I mean, so it's like, so I don't know. I just think, I think, I think what Revelation is doing over and over again is it's taking Old Testament motifs and critiquing them or using them to critique Rome's arrogance. And, and, yeah. and this is what happens in Ezekiel. 
when Ezekiel describes the fall of Tyre, or, or I think that's the city that that sounds it sounds like Lucifer is falling, but it was actually an ancient king. I mean, there's just this beautiful, um, not beautiful, but there is this poetic repetition of motifs that just keep gaining momentum until you hit the brick wall of Revelation 20, where we literally read about the fulfillment of Daniel 7, and uh, then spoilers. 21 and 22, yep, in Revelation 21 and 22, where we are back to the Garden of Eden, but now it's a city. So that there's this brick wall that all of this human momentum is going to run into. Um, so interesting. The, this, the email ties in so well to all right? this, because it literally is about like unlearning and relearning or or breaking those cycles or whatever like you just see you just see us get caught in the same things mm-hmm. and then it then then makes me think of that conversation with my son this morning where it's like we are power hungry and we want and so we expect that a good god is going to give us the power so that we can reign over our enemies but it's all through the lens of what we understand as good and whole totally and powerful totally. and Totally. Then God has to keep reminding us over and over again. No, no, no. It's yeah. I didn't come here to do that. Yeah. I am the Lamb who was slain. I won through right. defeat. Like right, right, it's just, right. <laughs> yeah. You just see and, it and, over and over and over. What a cycle we've been caught in. And and we're gonna meet um, people in Revelation twenty one and twenty two who are outside the city. Hmm. And um, because the picture is like, and I have no idea what to make of this, but it's fascinating because there there are some scholars who actually trace the sins of the seven churches through the dynamics, the evil dynamics of Babylon into those same people being excluded from new creation. I mean, you can see you can see that in other forms. So that doesn't seem like a far fetched idea. Just like. I think a lot of times we read the sins of the father as a punishment for uh, future generations, but I so often see it as um, passing down. You know, like we were learning so much about how we can pass down trauma, that trauma Mm -hmm. can be passed from one generation to another genetically without that newer generation actually experiencing trauma themselves. You can have PTSD and vicarious trauma from, like it, it, it can be in your DNA. Mm-hmm. And so it's like we were talking about the new Jim Crow in class the other day, and I was like, can, "Is I, I?" And I didn't say this in class, but I just always wonder how many things like intense racism or things like that can be handed down in our yeah. DNA. And so when I think about the sins of the father, sometimes I think about it that way. Like it's not like you're being persecuted for your dad's sins, but sometimes you carry the weight of those sins in yourself and you re-inhabit them. And God's trying so hard to break, yeah, these cycles of power over or, or persecute or whatever. Yep. And then you watch it just go further east from Eden, like yeah, yeah. Yep, exactly, exactly right, man. And so, um, I I think that you know part of the role of parents in the healthiest sense or part of the role of churches is to provide speed bumps in the momentum of human awfulness, (laughs) you know, just little, little places where those rest stops. 
Yeah, exactly. Those little, there's communal dynamics at least get interrupted and examined. And so what Revelation did for me and and still does is it makes me, um, it makes me investigate everything that we call normal. Um, the normal ways of humanness, the normal na- the the normal ways of parenting, the normal ways of doing church, and it just makes me a little suspicious. Again, I don't want to have a critical spirit towards those things, but I want to constantly ask where are the dynamics of capitalism at work in my heart, the dynamics mm-hmm. of individualism, the dynamics of um, uh, pornography and sexual exploitation at work, all Babylonian, all all of it, all of it, like even the Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the, the dynamics of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I, I get that text is used in really weird and awful debates, but there, there was a sense that the economic exploitation yes. and the sexual exploitation were two, two things of the same coin. It, they weren't just two separate issues. And that's going back as far as you can in the Old Testament. I mean, that, that, the, the honesty of the Old Testament text around sexual issues and exploitation is just crazy. It's one of the reasons why I actually trust it. I'm in a I'm in a graduate class right now looking at the way the kings of the ancient Near East wrote about themselves. And the Old Testament is by far, without a shadow of a doubt, the most critical document about its own rulers Hmm. um, uh, that has survived from the ancient Near East. There are so many ways that the the covenant Yahweh makes is different. The, The character of Yahweh revealed is different. And, and, it, and you can't understand that until you hold it against the other things that were being said about the gods. Yeah. So it looks ugly to us when Yahweh says, you know, I want you to eradicate the rest of the Nephilim in the promised land because um, somehow the flood missed them. I mean, I have no idea, but like, okay, that sounds pretty awful. Yeah. And then you look at holy warfare in the other you know, the other ancient Near Eastern texts that we have and cultures that we investigate, and you realize, oh my goodness, this this is miles ahead of anything human beings were doing. The idea that every human, not just the king, was made in the image of God. I mean, that, right. like, and so I, I, I'm willing to let the Old Testament speak to its time using its thought forms right. without standing in judgment over it going, well, how come it wasn't so enlightened right. as me? Because um, I've realized I'm not the enlightened one. <laughs> you know, for all of our humanity and enlightenment, look at what we do to each other. Yeah. I mean, it's the same freaking story. So I don't know, man. When people say things like, hey, Israel really messed it up and the church has got it right. No, no, we're just Israel part two, guys. You know, we're, I mean, and that's where I'm like, in some weird way, I'm hopeful because in the same way God used all of that to bring about Jesus, um, I think he uses all of that to bring about Jesus still, right? Yeah. Like, like in some weird way. There's so, always hope. I, you know, I always think about that with, um, was it Mr. Rogers with the, he would set his mom whenever they're watching a catastrophe oh, or something yes. in the news to always look for the people who are helping. Yeah. And I like that resonated or, you know, mm-hmm. it's another one of those things that got stuck in my craw, like just kind of burrowed in there. And, and I try to do that. And I, those people don't get publicized because we like to look at the car crash and the carnage. But there are people out there that are always advocating for good. And yeah, I don't know. I just think I, in class, we were talking about, um, we were re- reading an article on the environment, uh, two opposing articles, one talking about the evils of plastic, but then one talking about the evils of cardboard and the things that we've exalted over plastic. 
Oh, and wow. so we were just sitting in the tension between those two and kind of talking about what, like, what do we do here? What is our role? Mm. What is our place? Uh, how do we discern what is helpful and what's not through um, whatever information we're given? But I started thinking about, I don't know if you saw Oppenheimer, but there was a conversation I in there about yet. I'm how- waiting. I'm waiting till it comes out digitally. Well, this is not a spoiler, even though you know what happens. Um, there's, there's a conversation a about um, how there's a chance that when they set off the bomb, it'll ignite the atmosphere and destroy the planet, the entire planet. And so they're just kind of like talking, you know, kind of scientifically nonchalantly about the fact that they could kill every human being just by turning mm-hmm. this bomb on. And I was like, man, and you know, you read now that there's enough nuclear weapons on this planet to destroy the planet. We could destroy the planet Earth if we set off all of our bombs and Mm. Um, we have, you know, islands of plastic, the size of Texas floating Mm. around in our oceans. And so I was, I was thinking about that and the capabilities, like I have poison oak. It itches really bad. It drives me nuts. It's a simple, a little bush oil on a bush, like is torturing me. Mm. Um, we're so fragile and we can break so easy, but at the same time, we have the capability and the knowledge and the power to destroy all of life, Mm. all like we can decreate on the highest level. Yeah. And so somewhere in the tension of that, we have to find the way to be like so intentional and purposeful with how we navigate everything. Like mm. I was thinking about the walking with the limp thing and um, mm. don't, you know, don't trust a person doesn't walk with the limp. And I was thinking about a story that Shane Claiborne told about when he went out and served with Mother Teresa and how she walked with the limp. It is because as they were given shoes, she would give all the best shoes to the children and to people mm. that needed them. She always wore shoes that didn't fit her feet. And her feet had become so malformed from wearing these tight, constricting little things that she literally couldn't like, she walked with a limp. Like, mm. And it was out of a, a spirit of service and a spirit of giving everything she could away to other people. And she had the power to do that. She had, the, you know, she was famous enough. She could have written bestsellers oh, yeah. and become yeah. anything she wanted to. But I don't know. It's just the power that humanity has to kill and to and to rule over and how much we yep. want to utilize that power all the time. Oh, that's uh, what that's that's Babel. That's yeah, exactly that's the story. So, and so you see that, and we just find new ways of doing it. Yeah, and but we with, paint with it greater. That was part of the new Jim results. Crow conversations. Like you go from slavery, we're like, no, bad, we're not going to do that anymore. But then we inter- introduce segregated laws, Jim Crow laws, to do the same thing, but it looks nicer. And then we decide, no, that's not good. And then we have a new Jim Crow of prison systems and drugs. And I had my kids tr- like while they're sitting there research, what's the difference between cocaine and crack? And then what, but what's the, di- you know what I mean? And so you build it, we do the same things. We just paint the houses nicer when we do it. We redline it or we do whatever, but we're doing the same things of, of power over yeah. and new yeah. dynamics. And then we, we anoint it, we baptize it and say, this yeah. is better. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, or even worse, we um, call it God's politics. Yes, you know this is the this is the party of God. So, yeah, we're we're. I mean, all of that stuff. Good Lord, it's coming because Revelation pulls no punches. It's not like Revelation looks at at Rome and says, "Yeah, there's just not a lot of Christians there," and that's the problem. Right. It critiques economics. And the national idolatries and the national self-image of that thing. I mean, it's thorough. You're talking about like fl- and, flags on the back of pickup trucks? or I mean, I don't know. Maybe they had those too. 
Um, so anyway, friends, we got a lot. There is a lot coming at us. And again, the goal, whether you agree with where we go when we talk about these texts or even the texts themselves, we're hearing from some of you, it's like, I just don't buy this. Great. That's not, the point isn't that. The, the point has become people who are curious by the text and curious yeah. about other people and who walk with a humility to just go, man, I, th- I really think God is a lot bigger and, and more beautiful than we, we've been told. And, um, and so as we walk, wander around this national park together, yeah. going, oh, isn't that cool? And, oh, that's amazing. And, oh, I've, I didn't realize that's where that fit. That's that's the whole point of this. That's what we call reconstruction is just being swallowed up again in enchantment and wonder and mystery. And we know enough to be confident that it, we're safe in the national park. It's where we belong in the national park. It's beautiful there. Um, and we can live in ways that, are, that align with life in the national park. Absolutely. But there's still just so much to it. Well, just how could we ever say that we've arrived you know there's just never any arriving point and if there's no arriving point for us then how can we ever demand that from other people and um and so churches at their best are places where we just sit and all look at the grand canyon together going my lord this is amazing well how many times have you been with your kids on vacation or something i mean deconstruction reconstruction are really just repentance right you're you're just reorienting yourself. at its best yeah. that's exactly what it is you're reorienting so yep how many times are you with your kids were you like when they're little and you're looking they're looking the wrong way and you have to take their shoulders and literally turn them to face yeah. to see what they're not seeing yeah. and then they're like oh you know you see yeah. that sense of wonder or of yeah like you yeah. know overwhelmment or something like that yes. and it's like yes we just all need to take a breath and allow our shoulders to be turned so we can totally. re Totally. and go in the right direction see correctly and my so so my stepdad and my mom would take my brother and i they did it twice we would take rv trips from ohio out to the west and see yosemite and glacier and yellowstone and zion and bryce and the grand canyon but my i was 16 my brother was 14 and we weren't interested in the national monuments i i was interested in whether or not the parks the, the mobile home parks where we would, or the RV parks, whether or not they had pools. Yeah. Because pools meant they would have girls. And, <laughs> um, different topic. <laughs> and the, and the, I mean, yeah, speaking of awe and wonder. <laughs> um, but they would get so frustrated. Yeah. Like you are literally looking at some of the highest and best um, work that any artist has ever could ever conceive. Yeah. And you're interested in swimming in chlorined water, right? Chlorinated <laughs> water. And it's just like, that's exactly there right. So that gentle, <laughs> that gentle turning, you know, like, hey, you're missing this great thing over here. I totally resonate with that, Tim. Totally. And so that's the point, is that yeah. is that maybe, yeah, maybe we're settling for chlorinated water when there, there's a lot of fresh air exactly. waiting for us. So that a bunch of people have been peeing in. Oh. I didn't realize how prevalent that was. <laughs> I just didn't know. Now that I'm aware, I have a hard time swimming in public pools now. I just do. Anyway, that's another statement for another day. Dear listeners, thank you for tuning in. We love you guys. Appreciate you very much. See ya. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this conversation. 
Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on instagram at voxology thank you thank you thank you for walking the long road with us